Hi, and welcome to Inglewood Presbyterian Church in Kirkland, Washington. We are a church for the neighborhood. Whether you're a local neighbor or from far away, all are welcome here. We are pleased to present to you our weekly Sunday sermons. Our head pastor is James Cuman, and you can find more information about us on our website at inglewoodpc.org. Today's scripture comes from Luke, chapter 1, verses 39 through 45. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Good morning. My name is Liz, and I'm happy to be here in worship together virtually with you all this morning and to get to share a few thoughts about a passage Just so you know a little something about me, um, I'm a recent graduate of Fuller Theological Seminary. I'm a a member, a recent member at Lake Burien Presbyterian Church. Um, I grew up in Bellevue and then moved to California for college and ended up staying there for about 13 years before moving back to the Northwest uh, about a year ago. And my husband, Ken, and I live right here in Burien. I understand that this Advent season, you all are exploring the idea of Christmas from the margins. I love this idea, uh, both in general and because I think a lot of the challenges and struggles that 2020 has brought a lot of us um, have kind of impacted and maybe changed how we think about the margins and people on the margins and what it means to be marginalized. Some of us may have experienced being on the margins ourselves in new ways, whether that's through disrupted plans or isolation or fear or anxiety um, or job loss, job instability um, or sickness or loved ones getting sick or even losing loved ones. Some of these things can give us a sense of being pushed to the edge of what we thought was a kind of a stable center, a sense of being pushed to the margins. The last few months have also brought to the forefront of national attention and conversation movements toward racial justice and ending white supremacy. We've seen highlighted and made more visible to more people some of what it's like to be racially racially marginalized as a person of color in the US. This is 2020, right? This is where we're at. And these are the kinds, some of the kinds of things that I hope we can keep in mind as we think about our story this morning and as we begin this Advent season. 
So by the time we get to our passage this morning with Mary and Elizabeth greeting one another, a lot has happened already. An angel appeared to Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, while he's serving as a priest in the temple and says, you and Elizabeth are going to have a son and you should name him John. And Zechariah says, what? No way, man. That's not going to happen. We're both way too old. Which, to be fair, is totally true. Some scholars think that they were probably in their 60s. But the angel says, this is going to happen. And because you didn't believe it, you won't get to speak again until the baby is born. To which Zechariah says, well, nothing, because he can't. Then about six months later, the same angel appears to Mary. Not to Mary's fiancé or father or any other male authority figure in her life, but to Mary. And the angel says, you are going to have a son, and you should name him Jesus. Mary says, how, since I am a virgin? The angel says, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. And Mary says, okay, let it be as you say. Can you imagine being Mary here? An angel just appears to you out of nowhere, just about gives you a heart attack, and then tells you don't be afraid. And the angel says that you, you, in your small town in the middle of nowhere, in your youth as a teenager, in your vulnerability and insignificance as a young woman who is not yet married or a mother, which would have given her a little more status in her world, you, Mary, are going to miraculously give birth to a king, to the Holy One who will be called the Son of God. Talk about a disruption, right, of the quiet, humble life you planned on living, making life work alongside your husband-to-be in the midst of poverty, surviving together under the thumb of the Roman Empire, living faithfully to God as well as you can in your own quiet way. What do you do with this kind of life-disrupting news? Who do you talk to, right, about the angel and the miraculous pregnancy and everything? Who do you go to there in your small hometown full of people who generally tend to expect things like pregnancy to work in the usual way? Mary remembers that the angel told her that her older relative Elizabeth is also miraculously pregnant. So Mary sets off to visit Elizabeth. This is where we find ourselves in the story this morning. So Mary grabs a water bottle and a granola bar and types in Judean hill country on Google Maps on her iPhone, right, and hops in her parents' trusty old Subaru and heads off towards Elizabeth's place. Just kidding. In reality, her journey to the hill country of Judea was a slow one. It probably took about three to five days, depending on exactly where Elizabeth lived. The roads were known to be dangerous, full of robbers. My hope is that Mary found a caravan to travel with so that she would be safer. Regardless, it took courage for her to go off on her own like that, apart from her family and fiancé and hometown community. She must have felt it was necessary. I imagine her thinking, this is all so wild and unexpected and incredible and awesome and terrifying and good and exhilarating and complicated and confusing. I don't know if anyone will understand But if anyone could, maybe it's Elizabeth. It was the only thing for her to do. People on the margins are often people on the move, taking risks, seeking safe places to stay, seeking compassionate communities who will welcome them in. And God is with them as they do so. 
God is with those who, like Mary, find themselves desperate enough to make dangerous journeys. Not quite sure what they will find on the other side, but knowing that they have to go. So Mary arrives, enters the house, and greets Elizabeth with the usual type of greeting. Elizabeth does not give a usual greeting back. There's no, what's up? So good to see you. Long time no see. Instead, Elizabeth cries out loudly. You are blessed among women, and the fruit of your womb is blessed too. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the child in my womb leaped for joy. You are blessed because you believed that what the Lord said would happen. Immediately after Elizabeth says all this, Mary launches into her own beautiful prophetic poem that we might know as the Magnificat. It's all about God lifting up the humble, those on the margins, and bringing down powerful people who are proud. It's about God being full of mercy from generation to generation, God doing mighty things, filling up the hungry, being faithful, keeping promises. When I read this story, and I think about the idea of Christmas from the margins, I think about the very patriarchal, very male-dominated world that Mary and Elizabeth lived in. Because she's a woman, Elizabeth is not a priest like her husband Zechariah, even though she's the daughter of a priest. She's descended from the line of Aaron. That's what Luke tells us in verse 5 earlier in the story. If Elizabeth had been around the temple area when Zechariah was chosen by lot among the priests to go inside the temple, if Elizabeth had been there, she would have had to stay outside in a court called the Court of Women, which was where women could go to pray. It was outside the Court of Israel where the men could go to pray. So the worshiping women were literally physically distanced from the temple, more so than the men because of their gender, very literally pushed to the margins of the place that was considered holy. We also see earlier in the story that Elizabeth and not her husband Zechariah, Elizabeth was the one who was blamed for the couple's childlessness. So, so much so that when Elizabeth becomes pregnant, she says, the Lord has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. That's in verse 25. For her, infertility was not only a source of sadness and disappointment and vulnerability in old age, but also a social disgrace and uniquely so as a woman. It was a source of unending shame that followed her around throughout her life, even into her 60s. Many people likely assume that her infertility was caused by some sort of sin in her life. What was wrong with her that she had never been able to have a baby? What awful thing has she done? People must have given her the side eye and whispered behind her back. Maybe in her darker moments, Elizabeth whispered these things to herself too. What was wrong with her? Maybe she internalized the blame and shame that others kept placing on her. We also see evidence of women being pushed to the margins in their world within this passage itself. Verse 40 tells us that Mary, Mary entered the house of Zechariah. The house was considered Zechariah's property and his only, even though he and Elizabeth both lived there. And lest we think this is so far removed from our own world, remember that it wasn't until the mid-1970s that women in the US were allowed to have our own credit cards and to buy our own houses without facing blatant and totally legal discrimination because of our gender. 
In the midst of this male-dominated world, this scene, our story this morning, where Elizabeth and Mary greet one another is incredible. It's a man's world, but there are no men to be found in this scene. Zechariah is who knows where. The baby boys John and Jesus haven't been born yet. It's just a raw, unfiltered, real, beautiful human interaction between two female relatives, one older, one younger. In a world where women are supposed to disappear into the background, Mary and Elizabeth take up space. They take up space in Luke's narrative. They take up space in the story of Jesus, in the story of God's love and redemption in the world. They are an important part of the story, not just because of the sons they will give birth to, but in their own right too. They are examples of faithfulness, of believing God, of working with God, of participating in the joy of what God is doing. And they must have found so much comfort in their time together. Mary ended up staying with Elizabeth for about three months until her son, Elizabeth's son, John, was born. When we talk about Christmas, we often talk about Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. And sometimes God with us can look like another person coming into our life and being a source of comfort and encouragement. Someone who has walked or is walking some of the same paths that we are, someone who understands Someone who can, just by being there, remind us of God's presence with us. When the sound of Mary's greeting reaches Elizabeth's ears, little John the Baptist does a little jump inside Elizabeth's tummy. Elizabeth interprets this as a jump for joy of exaltation. Elizabeth then is filled with the Holy Spirit. The exact language of being filled with the Holy Spirit is only used a few other times in the New Testament. It's used when the angel tells Zechariah that John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. Zechariah is then himself filled with the Holy Spirit later on in this chapter when he speaks his own prophetic poem just a few verses after Mary's. Later on, the group of believers at Pentecost in the book of Acts are filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak in other languages. Peter and Paul are each described as being filled with the Holy Spirit in some parts of Acts, particularly when they have something especially bold and risky and gutsy to say. So Elizabeth here joins the ranks of people, of men, like John the Baptist and Zechariah and Peter and Paul. She is filled with the same spirit and she too speaks boldly. She speaks in a loud and confident voice. The Greek here actually uses three different words to express how intense her voice is as she speaks. She exclaims, a word meaning that she spoke out or cried aloud. Her voice is loud, a word meaning great. And it sounds like a cry. This is a word that uh, can also be translated as outcry or clamor. It's a word that's actually used by Paul when he writes to the church in Ephesus that they should try to stay away from things like anger and malice and brawling and clamor and that sort of thing that's in Ephesians 4.31. It's a fighting kind of cry. Loud, great, a clamor. And in Elizabeth's case, it's holy. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. It's bold and prophetic and true and important and very, very unladylike. While Zechariah, the priest at this point, is still unable to speak, Elizabeth, not allowed to be priest because of her gender, speaks loudly. 
women as well as others on the margins are often socialized to just get along. We're told in a million ways, don't make waves, don't be too loud, don't draw attention to yourself, don't stir up trouble, don't make anyone upset. Hold your tongue, speak gently and quietly, defer to others. Add to this all the shame Elizabeth's community has burdened her with because of her infertility. People use shame to push people to the margins and to keep them there, to make them feel like their marginalization is somehow their fault, to keep them from speaking up. When the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, she breaks out of all of these confines of what is considered respectable behavior. She has something important to say. She has prophecy to speak. She has inexpressible joy to try to express. And she doesn't have time to take a step back and make sure her voice is gentle enough and her words are inoffensive enough and nothing she says might be threatening to anyone. Maybe it's jarring to think of Elizabeth in this way. Or maybe if you're someone who feels marginalized in some of the same ways she did, maybe it's freeing and healing. Maybe it's a bit of both. Maybe for some of us, we're thinking, yes, speak up, speak your truth, embrace your empowerment by the Holy Spirit, keep speaking loudly and unashamed. You go, girl, you're awesome. And yet, is that how we see voices from the margins today who speak boldly as Elizabeth did, full of truth and fire and longing for justice? How open are we to hearing from marginalized prophets and prophetesses of our time? Do we expect them to conform to some sort of respectable standard before we're willing to listen? Do we bristle and get defensive because some of them are too loud or too angry for our taste? Elizabeth's bold speech, speech invites us to pay attention to who might be filled with the Holy Spirit, to who might be speaking prophetic words around us in our world today. In the words that Elizabeth speaks, so loudly after being filled with the Holy Spirit. These words are a series of blessings. You have been blessed, Mary, among women. The fruit of your womb has been blessed. Blessed is the one who believed. Elizabeth, who wasn't allowed to be a priest, embodies this very priestly role of pronouncing blessing, <clears throat> of calling Mary blessed. She recognizes God's incredible work in Mary's life and names it as such. Who do we tend to imagine or assume are the people who get to proclaim blessings? Who gets to be in that powerful and joyful position of saying with confidence, God is with you, God blesses you? Pastors, powerful people, influential people, respectable people? Do we hope and expect to hear blessings from the mouths of people on the margins? Can we receive those blessings? Do we expect that people on the margins have something to offer us? Are there ways we can learn from them, even as we might also see their needs and want to try to serve them? Are we open to the wisdom they have, the experience they have, the skills they have, the things they can teach us? And in the ways in which we might experience being marginalized, being on the margins, whether from gender or race or ethnicity, or unemployment, or disability, or sexual orientation, or anything else, do we see ourselves as empowered to be a blessing to bless others? Do we see ourselves as people who can speak boldly and call forth the best in others, as Elizabeth does for Mary?
As Kathy King writes in her, in her book, Raise Your Voice, Elizabeth is unafraid and generous in her word of blessing and exhortation. I imagine that's because she knows what I often have to remind myself. Finding and using our voice isn't a zero-sum game where we compete with others. Elizabeth isn't competing. She knows this is a journey for both of them, and she sets the stage for Mary to speak out words we now call the Magnificat. Elizabeth isn't just there to provide an audience or be a foil or a competitor. She's the one whose presence and words remind Mary who she is and what is to come. Isn't it beautiful when we can do this for one another? Blessing people isn't just for some subset of extra holy or powerful people. It's something all of us can do. And blessing one another isn't just for the times when everything is easy and things are going great. It's for the difficult times, too. Elizabeth and Mary did not live easy, comfortable, happy ever after kind of lives. Living in poverty as a religious minority under the thumb of the Roman Empire was not an easy thing. Add to that the task of raising sons who will both end up being killed as revolutionaries. Elizabeth and Mary lived difficult lives in difficult times. Many of us in 2020 have not had a particularly easy, comfortable, happy ever after kind of year either. And yet, even in these times, maybe especially in these times, we can bless one another. We can call forth the best in one another. We can be present with each other and be a comfort to each other as Mary and Elizabeth were. We can remind each other this Advent season of God's presence with us. And we can seek out and listen to the prophetic voices from the margins in our world. God is still speaking through them. We can hear their challenging, blessing, life-giving, world-altering, disruptive, uncomfortable words. We can receive and respond to the ways they are inviting us toward justice and goodness and wholeness as people, as a church, as, as the world, as our society. We can echo and amplify their voices to people we know who might not listen to them, but might listen to us. May we receive the gifts and challenges of Christmas from the margins this Advent season.